And it just hurts people. You know, I mean, hard as I try to deal with it, there's always something up that's coming to, to bring it back to life. And I'm about to see another psychiatrist now. I'm seeing two now. Yeah, helps a little bit. The guys in the group, a little bit better. But it just hurts. It just hurts so bad, you know? You want to do something about it, but you know if you do, it's going to make the situation even worse, especially if you allow anger to lead the way. That's Jackie Wilson speaking in September at the Notre Dame Law School, and he has plenty to be angry about. In 2018, he was finally released after 36 years of wrongful imprisonment. Chicago police tortured him into a false confession in 1982 after his brother killed two police officers. It's one of the most notorious cases of police abuse in Chicago history. A decades-long practice of police torture of minorities on the South Side was kept silent for years, but a team of public defenders wouldn't give up. They exposed the torture practices that to date have cost the city more than $100 million in damage compensation. But they beat me dictionaries, anything they can get their hands on. They stomping on my hands. I mean, they literally pull you to the ground. I'll handcuff with one hand to the wall and snap them out with the other hand. They stomping on your hands. But worst of all was the small black box. The police officer in charge of interrogations had been a soldier in Vietnam and brought back a torture device used there. Officers attached the hand-cranked electrical device to their victims with wires to produce painful shocks and force false confessions. More than 100 people were systematically tortured, including Jackie Wilson. There was nothing I could do, nothing I could say to them, other than to lay here and give them what they wanted which was an open and shut statement of guilt, saying that I did this. And when I refused, I went through some of the roughest tortures you guys ever believe. I'm still having nightmares about this, waking up in my sleep. Jackie Wilson was speaking to law students in the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic. The students are working to exonerate about a dozen Indiana inmates they believe were wrongfully convicted under the guidance of Jimmy Garule, a law school professor, and Elliot Slosser, a civil rights attorney from Chicago. Previous episodes of this series have focused on how current students are working to free their clients. This final episode will explore the notorious case of Jackie Wilson to show how the clinic continues to affect the students after they graduate. Two graduates featured here did internships in Chicago and got to know Wilson after he was released. One now does voluntary exoneration work, while the other joins Slosser's law firm. Despite their other classes, all the students work long hours on these exoneration cases because they believe they are making a difference in a flawed justice system. Exonerations are more common than you may think. There have been nearly 2,800 wrongful convictions overturned in this country since 1989. That's an average of one every four days. I'm Brendan O'Shaughnessy, and you're listening to the Notre Dame Stories series, Proving Innocence. (laughs) 
On February 9, 1982, two Chicago police officers attended the funeral of a fellow officer who had been shot days before. During a routine traffic stop on their way back, Richard O'Brien and William Fahey were shot and killed. The city's police force was understandably enraged. Jackie Wilson and his brother Andrew were the people involved in the traffic stop. Jackie, as well as an eyewitness, said that he stood still and complied with police orders and that his older brother Andrew Wilson shot the police officers. Andrew ordered his brother into the car and they fled the scene. Jackie has always said his brother's actions surprised him. When Elliot Slosser was a few years out of law school, he joined a legal team that had been working on Jackie's case for decades. Slosser would be one of Jackie's top lawyers at his third trial in 2020. Here, Slosser introduces Jackie to the class and gives context to his story. Jackie was arrested in February of 1982 and tortured into a false confession because there were two white police officers who died and the entire city wanted justice. Half the city wanted retribution on top of justice. To this day, it was one of the largest manhunts that the city of Chicago has ever seen. There were hundreds of official complaints lodged with the city of Chicago about people of color being terrorized on the south side of Chicago. 20-year-old kid who is literally a witness to something horrible that his brother did, losing 36 years of his life because the police and prosecutors refused to acknowledge that he could have been a witness instead of a defendant too. Everybody has always known that Jackie Wilson did not have a gun, and never fired a single shot. And yet he was tried for capital murder and spent almost 40 years in prison. Jackie is one of the most tragic, wrongfully convicted people that you will ever hear. The police learned of Andrew and Jackie's involvement through the brutal torture of other suspects. The brothers were arrested when their rust-colored Chevrolet was found, along with the service revolvers of the dead officers. Here, Slosser explains how the police obtained confessions. When Jackie was being interrogated, uh, the lead supervisor, John Burge, had come back from Vietnam with torture techniques, including a black box that had a wire with an alligator clips, and they would attach that to people of color in interrogation rooms at the Southside police station. And they would wind up the box and electrocute these suspects until they gave confessions to crimes, regardless of whether they actually did it or not. And actually left burn marks. The alligator clips left the burn marks on his ears, which his attorneys were able to photograph and use that emotion to suppress. The confession still came in. It was not suppressed. Jackie Wilson also spoke about his torture to the class, though he was overwhelmed by emotion. It's been a while since I've been out speaking publicly. I mean, I've been 
Osmo recluse, if you will. But bear with me, if you will, please. This is not an easy thing for me. Thank you. I'm sorry. And the police station is on 91st and Cottage in Chicago. It had always been there. It's called Area 2 Homicide. And this has been going on since the early 70s that they've been beating and torturing African Americans who come through that police station. And it's not a record. They beat them and taught them and get confessions and send them into prison. And they've been doing this for years. And my family knew it, our community, everyone in the community, African-American community, knew about it. It wasn't until I got there that I actually experienced it firsthand. They electrocuted me with the box that it was telling guys about. Me and my wife walked into court with it. They never saw it. But I made a point to them. I want the world to see this box and see what they did to me with it. With the tortured false confession in hand, Prosecutors chose to try Jackie and Andrew together in their first trials. Andrew Wilson was given the death penalty, while Jackie Wilson got a double life sentence. Slosser described the trial as more like a lynching than an actual legal proceeding. About four years later, the Illinois Supreme Court ordered a new criminal trial for Andrew Wilson because the state could not prove his confession was not a product of physical abuse. Wilson called Flint Taylor, a civil rights lawyer with the People's Law Office, to represent him. In his 2019 book, The Torture Machine, Taylor explains why he agreed. Quote, Knowing the case would be a massive undertaking with little chance of success, our office agreed, nevertheless, that torture was a human rights violation, period. End of story. No matter how unpopular the victim. Jackie and Andrew were both given retrials in the late 1980s that were severed. Andrew went first in 1988. Jackie went in 1989. Jackie was again wrongfully convicted, this time of only one murder instead of two. He was acquitted of killing one of the officers at the retrial. Flint Taylor did not give up. He and his legal team uncovered dozens of other torture victims, by the same police officers. Many had had their faces covered in plastic bags until they passed out. Others had guns stick in their mouths for Russian roulette. Taylor fought a 30-year legal battle against a system of police silence and systemic cover-up, which he documents in his book. Elliot Slosser did not get involved in this expanding case for decades, mainly because he became an attorney in 2014. His entrance into Jackie's life came through a case equally as tragic. Imagine being a licensed attorney for two years and representing somebody who had been incarcerated your entire life. Actually, like Jackie went into prison three years before I was born. Jackie was a witness in a different wrongful conviction case that I was litigating in Illinois for a person by the name of Alton Logan. Alton Logan was wrongfully convicted of a murder in 1982 that Jackie's brother committed with somebody else. Andrew Wilson committed that murder. The same police officers who framed Jackie 
framed Alton Logan as well. And by the time that they realized that Alton Logan was innocent, in February of 1982, they couldn't do anything because they had already manipulated the eyewitnesses into wrongfully identifying him. When Andrew saw that Alton Logan was being put on trial in a death penalty case, he told his lawyers, that guy did not do that murder. He didn't do it. I did it. But I'm already in one death penalty case for killing two Chicago police officers. And I can't admit responsibility to this other case. Andrew Wilson would not let his lawyers disclose his responsibility. He would not let them break the attorney-client privilege. The case was so dramatic it was featured on 60 Minutes, and it was taught in law school ethics classes. The attorneys were able to convince Andrew Wilson to sign an affidavit that could only be disclosed when he died. The attorneys put that signed disclosure in a lockbox. The attorneys went to this capital murder trial of Alton Logan that happened right around the same time as Jackie's trial with his brother and watched to see if Alton would be sentenced to die while knowing in the pews that their client really did the murder. That's pretty wild. For the next 26 years, they kept an affidavit in a lockbox under the bed of one of the attorneys and waited for Andrew Wilson to die. And when that happened 26 years later, they opened the lockbox, took out this affidavit, which memorialized the confession of Andrew Wilson to this murder, brought it to the court, and Alton Logan was released from prison after spending more than half of his life behind bars for a crime he didn't Flint Taylor's ongoing legal battle against Chicago finally began to turn in the early 2000s. Illinois Governor George Ryan pardoned four men on death row due to their tortured confessions, and he would later ban the death penalty in the state. While the statute of limitations expired on the crime of torture, the officer in charge, John Burge, went to prison for perjury in 2010. A Chicago judge ordered a new trial for Jackie Wilson in 2018, and he was released from prison. And that's when Notre Dame law students Paula Ortiz Cardona and Molly Campbell met Jackie Wilson. Here, Cardona explains how she got involved in Jackie's case. Notre Dame allows you the opportunity to do an externship. And I took that opportunity and went to Chicago the spring of my third year. So right before the pandemic started. And I was working with Elliot. That was my externship project, working at the Exoneration Project in Chicago. And one of the big cases that was going on right now was the Jackie Wilson case. We're working on his retrial. A lot of what we were doing was just motion practice. We, While I was there, we were able to finally get a trial date scheduled, which took a really long time. There were special prosecutors on the case, which was unique to this case and many of the other torture cases that were being looked at in Chicago because there had been... Um, a conflict of interest with the state's attorney's office. So they had given these cases to special prosecutors. My job when I 
first started, apart from just getting to know Jackie and getting to know how beautiful of a human being he was and so resilient and to have gone through something like that. He was so principled, too. Uh, he has wonderful stories. Most of my job was motion practice. So a lot before you go to trial, you try to resolve a lot of the issues. We just write motions trying to get evidence that we think shouldn't be presented to a jury. We try to get that out. Campbell also met Wilson at the internship with the Chicago Exoneration Project. He was there all the time, and I think, you know, he was still trying to find his way a little bit. And, you know, he obviously got out of prison after 36 years and didn't really have a support network. So that was kind of his, the firm was kind of his support network. So he was around all the time. So I met him there. So I actually, you know, knew Jackie more personally than I did his, his case. I started hearing about this case as a student and now to work on it as an attorney. And when you kind of have a little bit more context for, like, what's normal to happen and what's not um, and just sort of how the kind of injustice that um, Jackie suffered, and I think especially for how long he was in prison. You know, I actually probably know Jackie a little bit better than a lot of our other clients, and to kind of see him, I think, try to try to navigate his life, you know, after prison um, has been pretty eye-opening. Cardona says she was impressed by Wilson's strength and endurance. The important part of this case, and I think the one that matters, is this case happened in the 80s in Chicago. Jackie's a black man, and he was charged for the killing of a white police officer. My point being with that, though, is the racial underpinnings of this case can't be ignored. Jackie goes to prison, and from the beginning, he's always fighting for his innocence. Jackie's a very principled person. He really maintained his innocence throughout. He taught himself the law. He, one of the things that surprised me when I first met him was when he talked to me about the hunger strike he went on when prison officials stole his legal documents, his legal materials that he had been using and building. Jackie was ready to die or because he felt, and he was correct, that there had been an injustice. Wilson's hunger strike started because prison authorities took away his legal documents after he began helping other prisoners. He mentioned it to the class. We talked about the three and a half year hunger strike that I was on in prison. They had the involuntary medical intervention me. In short, they had to stick a long tube like that, through my nose, down my throat, into my stomach, and had the tag team handcuff me down, stick, shield, mace, and camera for the past three and a half years because they took all of my legal property. Campbell said that meeting Jackie and the other wrongfully imprisoned clients had a profound effect on her future career. You realize what, um, I think through the clinic, kind of realize how much it affects people, affects people's lives, um... And just getting some, like, exposure to do, like, some actual work while you're in law school. Um, you know, I think those are the, the pieces of it that make it, you know, have kind of pushed me into actually going into this area of law. What happened at Jackie Wilson's third trial in 2020 surprised everyone. Cardona described it as a gotcha moment of the kind that only happens in TV legal dramas. 
Slosser says it's the only time in Cook County history where the prosecutors are now subject to criminal prosecution for their actions in a wrongful conviction case. It's a complicated case, but Slosser and Cardona explain what happened. So by 1989, they had uh, the lead prosecutor is this guy named Nicholas Chertinko. He was a young, rising star. But Chertinko was like real desperate at the retrial. Look at how the prosecution deals with the retrials. Usually there's less witnesses because the people that were leveraged originally to falsely testifying, there's no longer, they no longer have pending criminal cases. But there's also sometimes new witnesses who pop up. And so at this retrial, the board isn't big enough actually to write all the aliases for this guy, but we'll call him William Coleman today. He's got like 30 aliases. This is the informant that Tritinko found. Tritinko was prosecuting this guy for felonies in a different courthouse and turned him into a star witness for Jackie's second trial. Coleman uh, has convictions from Hong Kong to all over Europe, including America. When he was in the Cook County Jail, he actually escaped, went to Philadelphia, committed more crimes, they brought him back. He had federal charges of like conspiracy and uh, um, fraud out in a federal case out in the East Coast. Like an unparalleled criminal record. He actually testified Jackie's case under his cousin or uncle's name of Alfred Clarkson. Like didn't even testify under oath to the right name. Mm -hmm. Says that Jackie made some BS confession to him while they were in jail together. Never happened. They weren't even in the same wing of the jail like literally could not have physically happened. But Coleman is what Tretinko hinged the 1989 conviction on. Jackie was uh, uh, convicted in part on Coleman's testimony. We found out right before Jackie's trial in 2020, Tretinko was the godfather of Coleman's daughter in was born in England. So Coleman was from the UK, particularly England, and thanks to baptism records, we were able to find that Tritenko was, in fact, Coleman's daughter's godfather. And which presents huge conflicts of interest issues. And we learned during Jackie's trial, retrial in fall of 2020, while Tritenko was on the stand, we learned that he not only had failed to disclose his special relationship with his key informant, but that he still maintained contact with his informant up to this day. But while Tritenko is on the stand, it comes to light that Tritenko had spoken to Coleman recently. As, as early as a week before he was testifying. And he had failed to disclose this to us, but more importantly, he had failed to disclose this state, which led to the judge jaw-dropping and an audible sigh in the courtroom. When we find out that he's alive, it changes the entire dynamic of this trial. One, because the lead prosecutor 
withheld information 30 years ago, the whole case falls apart because uh, the prosecutors withheld uh, exculpatory information. So during the middle of my cross-examination of Tretinko is when this first got revealed. He had already committed perjury by then. During the cross-examination with Tretinko, he admitted that he was still in contact with Coleman, which was a big problem because the state had represented to us and to the court that Coleman was dead. This was like real shocking stuff. We were looking for this international fugitive. That's part of the reason why there's a special prosecutor going after, you know, Tretinko, during my cross-examination, the special prosecutor walked up like an hour into it and told me, when you sit down, we're dismissing this case. They dismissed the case with prejudice. That state's attorney, Tretinko, was fired that night in a very public way. It's the only time in Cook County history, and there have been hundreds of exonerations from Cook County, the only time in Cook County history where prosecutors are being subject to criminal prosecution for actions in a wrongful conviction case. This last summer, Slosser's law firm, Lovey & Lovey, filed a civil suit on Wilson's behalf for compensation based on his wrongful conviction and years in prison. And the certificate of innocence is something that will help with the civil case. This is where he has an opportunity to get some of his livelihood back. Um, Jackie's someone who lost 36 years. It was, he was 18, now he's in his 50s. Um, he hasn't had the opportunity to go to school or even develop a lot of the life skills that most people have the opportunity to develop. So being able to properly get him the compensation he deserves is, is crucial. To hold the police and prosecutors criminally responsible for the misconduct that they did. That is justice, right? Jackie, someday might get a real massive check. Justice is seeing the prosecutor who framed him in handcuffs. Wilson already received some compensation for his years in prison, but that has given him a new set of problems. He said family members constantly badger him for money, despite never visiting or supporting him in prison. He also finds it hard to be around people who weren't his brothers in prison for most of his life. He has been robbed several times and nearly killed once. It got me scared to a point where I really don't even want to go out at night. It's hard. And then when I do go out, I, sometimes I get made by people. They recognize me, and that kind of spooks me too. Because you still got police still in denial about this. You know, they're upset with the fact that I'm even out. They feel that I still should need to be in prison. I was going to sit out of place in this time. The last time I was here, I had a box phone, you know, the cord, antenna. You guys walking around with this. Handheld computers. Amazing. Everyone continues to look for me to be that problem solver, and I'm tired. And like I told him at press time, I am truly tired. I can't win. And like I said, that island in Tahiti somewhere sounds real good. Wilson said he wants to help people and only asks that they help 10 others. Two people he's already helped are Cardona and Campbell. Campbell took a job with Lovey and Lovey in late 2019 after working as a legal clerk the year after graduating law school. 
you know, I didn't go into law school or even during law school wasn't thinking like, oh, I want to pursue a career in wrongful convictions, um, civil rights work. But obviously it ultimately, you know, like I think I was committed to it, did good work. Um, and that's kind of how this opportunity presented itself. Her decision to pursue civil rights work wasn't clear until she came to a recent press conference announcing the culmination of one of the cases she worked on. I flew from Kansas City to Chicago to do this press conference in Andy Royer's case. I was just a lot more excited about doing that um, than I was about, uh, you know, any, you know, anything else that I had encountered to that point. Um, so I think it was, you know, in part just kind of trying a few different things and realizing that I like that work and in part just very gradual, the more, you know, the more you do, the more you get invested. Cardona recently passed the bar and started working at a law firm in Washington, D.C. She continues to do volunteer work on the clinic's cases and hopes to convince her firm to allow her to take on exoneration cases as pro bono work. Right now, my biggest hope would be to, or what I'm planning on working towards is for me, able to, for me to be able to continue doing this type of work while also working at the firm. I just have to get the backing from a few of my superiors to sign off on it and allow me to do it on my free time. Um, and the good thing about that is that you can put some of the resource, firm's resources into these type of cases. I'm hoping to help out with some of the Notre Dame Exoneration Project ones, but also potentially take on a new case over here in the East Coast, closer to me. We chose to be lawyers. We chose to, to pursue this career path. And it's very easy to graduate law school and never have to think about when the system fails because it never failed for us or because we might not have ever interacted with the system. And having the opportunity to work on Andy's case and to work on Jackie's case and all the other cases that we've worked on has not only changed uh, my perspective of our legal system, but it absolutely changed my life. For the future, I hope, I, I'm always in contact with Elliot. I'm always following up on these cases. I'm hopefully going to start doing it pro bono, and we'll see what the dream what the dream scenario will end up being. It's, it's definitely going to involve, in some way, defense and innocence work. Proving Innocence is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. This was the final episode of our six-part series. I'm your host, Brendan O'Shaughnessy. Our music is by Alex Mansour. Thank you for listening.